We're going to start with me and then go to you, okay? <laughs> yeah, why don't we start with you and then go to me? <laughs> okay. okay, my name is Kent Dahlgren, and this is... Ruth Glendinning. And we're going to talk about the Anti-Fragile Playbook. Because we're anti-fragile, and we want you to be, too. <laughs> yes. Report recording in progress. <laughs> Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Kent. It's with... uh, been quite quite an interesting uh, month already, and it's only day three. <laughs> I know, I know. It's really great, actually. <laughs> Um, we were we were realizing last night that we could record a podcast um, on the legacy of opportunity, um, which is sort of our preferred way of talking about um, uh, you know new possibilities and all that. Yeah. And well, uh, it, it, it came to me uh, several years ago because you know everybody who has an idea or a solution, whatever, they're always looking for some money bags to to fix it. You know, and they want to go, they want it, they spend so much effort trying to get these wealthy people, whoever's holding the resources to care about what they're doing. And it, I just saw this pattern emerge, which was like, oh, uh, they want a way to be remembered. Yeah. You know, we, you know we, we've all seen the monuments falling down. We've seen the buildings in disrepair, that there were people who were huge influences in the world at a certain point that people just don't even know the name of it all you know right. and and, the, and so that kind of uh impact which seems so solid is actually very transitory and so i started thinking about it and i was like you know here's what we want to do and it's been very effective in speaking to people who have a lot of resources how do, what kind of legacy of opportunity do you want to leave do you want right. to re, do you want to be like carnegie who certainly um was a hardcore capitalist and he caused a lot of damage in in ways but he also left Carnegie Mellon University. He also left libraries, right. you know? And so what he did is just said, great, you know, you may not achieve at the level I did because you're not, you don't know everything I did to get there, right. but I'm going to have an open door policy for you to engage with the tools of success and right. you have to kind of create your own success. So that's part of what was my underlying thinking around it. Well, I like it too. Uh, I was thinking that, you know, like, my uh, paternal grandfather uh, uh, was born and lived in Washougal, Washington, which is across the river from Portland and upstream. And it was during the Depression era. And he told me this great story about, you know, they were lucky to find some work in the Pendleton Woolen Mill during the Depression. And, and you know, the backdrop on this is that his father had died doing construction. Um, and so um, his mother had to cart them all off to uh, basically orphanages <laughs> and, mm -hmm. until she could get married and then try to assemble her kids again. And along the way, one of his brothers died. And so it was in that context that he's walking the train tracks um, uh, on the way to the woolen mills and he's a kid and he finds a, a typewriter that had been thrown from the train because it was broken. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and it was, uh, uh, Trudy's walking through, we're recording a podcast, good morning. And, um, and so he, he saw it for what it was, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was like that era's version of finding a laptop. And, right. um, and so he spirited it away into the bushes, which, you know, in that part of the world, the brambles, the blackberry bushes are just like everywhere. And, uh, <laughs> and so he had found, made a little fort and, and then he had gone there and, and, you know, I can't even describe to you what that's like, but it's, you know, it's raining all the time. It's cold. And he would go in there and he would practice typing on a broken typewriter and it was because of that wow, learned. what a great story you know, it's a really cool story <laughs> yeah, and he'd learned how to um, type and it was because of that skill he was able to get a job as a clerk in the army um, before world war ii so he had done his military service before world war ii had even begun um, and because of that experience as a clerk which was which is entirely be because he had found a typewriter right right um, he got a job as a clerk in the railroad, which was a pretty big deal during the, you know, that the years between the depression and the war starting. Um, and, and really because of that, like he ended up retiring in the seventies um, as the regional director for um, uh, uh, personnel for Burlington Northern. So for Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, and, and had been with Seattle, uh, Spokane and Pacific um, railroad. So like he had, he had really, really, done something with that right so that was this interesting that's an interesting frame on this thing you talk about this legacy of opportunity somebody had discarded the the broken typewriter from the train and for him he recognized it as an opportunity but what he did with that is that he would encourage me 
because he saw within his oldest grandson the ability to recognize the transformational power of technology, um, yeah. which is not how he would say it because he was a very concrete person. But he would really encourage me and my grandma did too. They would say like, you know, you have such a good eye for these things. You really understand how things work and why they work. And, and they really built that. So this is, a I would consider a good example of like what, what began with an opportunity from somebody else's refuse turned into a legacy of opportunity that my grandfather had invested in me. So it wasn't just that I had been raised within that influence, but, but he had invested into circles that I could leverage. I have a name that resonates among a certain generation um, in that, that region. Um, and, uh, you know, people are, are quick to dismiss that as privilege, which it is. It is definitely privilege. I don't want to say the term is dismissive. It's just that it's been rendered completely. Um, it's polarized right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I, if I say, which is true, I had great privilege in that region. Um, people then they turn their nose up and say, well, privilege isn't real. And I don't want to get into that. I hate those arguments, to be honest. Um, but you can't deny that my grandfather left a legacy of opportunity from which I was able to benefit. And, um, and I have a lot of stories like that. Uh, I'll pause because I have another one. But um, well, and, and I think it's interesting. So Carnegie was well known for railroads. Uh -huh. Your grandfather started to work with the railroad. Um, you know, this two weeks ago, April, uh, August 15th, uh, one of my dearest friends and mentors um, of 34 years passed away very unexpectedly. Yeah. And his family was changed by the railroad too. Mm -hmm. In Altoona, Pennsylvania, um, his parents, both of whom came from Italy and had very little edu formal education, you know, mm -hmm. um, they opened up Rose's Spaghetti House. Mm -hmm. And he served the people on the railroad and all of his uncles worked with the railroad and his father, you know, th th that it was a brutal life. You know, you did what you could with it, but it was a rough life. Um, you know, there were people, a lot of people with missing limbs from working on the railroad. And right. so it, it, when you think about it, if we kind of bring this forward, um, you know, the Internet is our railroad, right? right? It is our transportation core. And so here it is, you and I both have these connections to it. And, and, and what people have probably figured out by now in our podcast is we don't really plan it. You know, right. we just kind of go with what comes up. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about a, a, a legacy of opportunity, but it comes by making those connections, right. you know, by having those, um, those, those ports of call, the, those, those stops and, you know, so with your grandfather, it was him seeing the potential in something, kind of finding the treasure from the trash, right? Right. And um, with with Mike's uh, parents, it was, you know, we have to feed people. You know, we have to, and, and this is this is what we can do. We know how to make spaghetti. We can create this. And so you do what you have, what you can with what you have. Right. And what has been so, what's so uh, overwhelming, I think, about the internet is that you have access to everything and you don't have a sorting function. You know, you don't know how to organize it. It feels like chaos. <laughs> but it's and not. Yeah, you know, so we were talking about, it's like, it's a lot of noise, but um, the, the, legacy, the, the lexicon of future I wrote today um, is about O is for observer effect. Yes. It's like, how do we sort through all this stuff so that we're, when we're talking about a, a creating a legacy of opportunity, it wasn't that your grandfather said, gosh, I hope Kent grows up to be a clerk at a railroad. You know, he, <laughs> what he said was, I hope he sees the pattern of opportunity. Exactly right. And, and takes it forward. It's exactly right. Because in his era, Tektronix was the largest employer in the state of Oregon and very prestigious. Mm -hmm. So when I got a job at Tektronix, um, he saw it for what it was. And for him, he was able to draw the line of continuity between the poor kid from Washougal, whose father had died uh, falling uh, uh, at a construction, building a house, basically, finding a typewriter and working his way. He saw that, that, that connection. He didn't think literally. He wasn't like, oh, he'll be a clerk at Tektronix. He saw that there was a, a tie. And for him, it, he just, it was immediate. And he was very thrilled that he could see that, that continuity. And he, you know, we come from poor, so he could see that this broke that pattern. For him, it was, it was thrilling. And, um, um, and, and I have this other complimentary story is that uh, on my, um, my mother's side, um, my uh, grandmother was born in, in, in West Texas and her father died when she's three, three months old. And then they made their way to Oregon um, at the tail end of the Dust Bowl thing. 
And, um, uh, but the family came together and, uh, and she was the youngest of, you know, a bunch of kids, but, uh, but she, uh, she was a reader and, um, and she didn't just read, but she really got into the metaphor and the understanding and she challenged me. I was again, her oldest grandson as well. And, um, and she really challenged me on this, uh, and, uh, it was rough, but I loved it actually, because she never spoke to me as if I were a child, she would challenge me on, um, you know, just exactly why I felt the way I did and things like that. And, um, and, and as a consequence, actually it's, it's from, it's for that reason, I became not just conversant and eloquent, um, but also able to navigate tropes and allegory and stuff like that. And that definitely contributes to a legacy of opportunity. If you think about it, Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, because I can, I can navigate almost any circle (laughs) actually pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then my, my, um, my paternal grandmother, uh, she, they also, you know, dust bowl, um, they moved from Missouri and, uh, uh, that era. And my, my grandma actually have in my possession, a scrapbook. One of the few things that made that journey was a scrapbook that she kept, um, of all the places that she hoped to see when she grew up. And as it turns out, she did, she was able to do that. I actually have all of those photo albums as well. And, uh, as well as her genealogy. And, uh, and so, she challenged me to see the world. And so what my grandparents, who all of whom had come from dirt poor, uh, all of whom come from family who came to the new world in the 1600s and had worked their way through the whole mess, right? But all of them were dirt poor, but they had all invested in, in certain themes, you know, uh, to read, to become conversant in how people use tropes and allegory and metaphor and, and how to make use of technology in novel ways and all that. So they would not be surprised that, you know, I've only been up for a few hours, but I've been corresponding with, solo, uh, with fellow uh, activists I know in the Pakistan region. Um, I've had uh, ongoing email correspondence with uh, Tamil that I know from Southern India talking about various topics topics and and um, observing mentally that um, on a certain level they might be considered uh, 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 adversaries but in the context of what we're trying to do they're actually allies which is really interesting um, and uh, and able to do so with fluidity right and it's fascinating right <laughs> it's really fascinating how we just tumble into this and I wouldn't be able to make use of this opportunity if not for how much my grandparents had invested in going right. back the, the legacy of opportunity uh, which I'm, I'm loving you know well, it, it, and it really, um, it's, it's really fun having discussions with people because because you and I both are very fluid with how we organize words. Right. You know, it, it's like, it's always flipping the script. It's always saying, okay, what does this really mean? You mm-hmm. know, and unbinding people from these contracts of meaning right. to say, okay, question it, you know, like, like it's flexible. This is all, that language is a living tool. And it is going to um, either cage you or free you. Right. And, and, but you have to have that technology of language and the practice of thought to actually believe that this is a possibility. Exactly. Because once you, once you say, okay, there's all these potentials that I haven't activated. And by putting attention, you know, kind, of, kind of shining the light on something, it becomes bigger. It becomes right. more interesting and it, it starts showing different colors. It's like a prism effect, right? right. And so, so that's what I feel like we've been doing a lot. Um, yeah, certainly, August was a very busy month, but September, like I said, it's only day three and it's already like, wow, we're, we're pretty, things, right. are, things are amplifying. They're going, they're exponential. Mm-hmm. But even in the, uh, the, the local projects that we're putting together for, um, you know, for the 214 marketplace and, right. and bring all that together and the fact now that we've worked through some of the underlying stories it's reactivating our ability to continue writing the anti-fragile playbook indeed you know, it's like again it's 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 palpable i guess it's like it's getting some weight you know yeah well so I mean, to that end, actually. So this is what I loved about having, you know, a, a whole clutch of depression area grandparents and their siblings who had embraced me as the eldest grandson and really imbued that spirit is that I have a hard time understanding why people get that deer in the headlights look at what they consider chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's only because they don't recognize the opportunity. And for them, it's just order they don't understand, right? So, you know, when things begin to devolve, I'm like, 
All right. Well, I mean, now we can get started <laughs> because, because all okay. this is now available. Yeah. And this definitely informed, you know, kind of using an example, I had spent a lot of years doing, um, you could call it skate park advocacy, although that's not exactly accurate. I mean, obviously the result is that you create a, a place for people to skate, something that's safe and legal. Um, and uh, uh, because, you know, henceforth, the kids didn't have somewhere that was safe and they would be in traffic and that sort of thing. But anyway, once it's built, that's great. They have a place they can go and it's safe and it's legal and it's all that other stuff. But in order to get there, you've got to build this sort of cross-functional collaboration with other people in the community um, that really really weaves those people back into the, into the fold, right? Because if you criminalize yeah. the activity, like one in six kids in America are skaters. And in some regions, it's even higher. It's like one in four. And if it's criminalized, what you end up doing is socializing kids into criminality. It's like, I don't know why people don't think about this, right? It becomes a rite of passage for a perfectly decent kid to figure out how to provoke a cop to chase them. It becomes this thing they've got to go through. And it's been like that since the Carter administration. Like people don't exactly get this, but it's been, it's been going on for a long time. And as a consequence, it has not only not worked this criminalizing the activity, but it's actually made it more popular. Um, the, the byproduct of it, of course, it's also most, more dangerous. So kids get hit by cars and, and they, um, you know, they're hospitalized or they die. And that's a bummer. So in order to get these parks built, like we got to work with the community and by working with the community, it stitches the kids back into the fold. And then mm -hmm. over time it becomes decriminalized and then they just become normal kids. Right. So I kind of dig that. But anyway, uh, you're talking, when you're talking to people about it, like one of the things is that you're, you're trying to, as an activist, trying to engage them with the vision and, and, a lot of people don't know how to how to get things built. They don't know how to traverse the process. Right. And so their their mind, like their furrow, their brow is furrowed, and they just don't get it. And they think to themselves, if someone could just write a one like a big check, and then then that one big check could be given to somebody with one big truck, and that one big truck did one big sport, and it would make one big park. It's like not that's not how it works. Like I've talked about this before. Like you do this a bag at a time. That's how that's how it happens. Yeah. But but here's the cool part on this. This is this is reason for me doing all this preface on this is that there's a point where people see it. They begin to see the order in the chaos and, and they, they, start, they, start, they start digging their claws into it. They start, it starts catching. And then they start making these big strides and they start to see um, opportunity uh, that we hadn't seen because, because we play a role kind of getting it going. And this is where like, I, I like to talk about the skate park tours. Like for all the years that I had done activism, it didn't occur to me that we would be so successful that we would spawn and spark a cottage industry of people who give tours to skate parks where um, uh, people fly into the Portland airport or the Seattle airport and they get picked up in a van and they drive to all of the different parks because there ends up being this bizarrely concentrated number of high quality parks in the Northwest, right? And it was like, and there's all these other cottage industries that launched in addition to that. I hadn't even considered it, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, it, it's like we had invested, like how many, I don't know how many parks are in the Northwest that have my name on a plaque. Nobody looks at those, by the way. <laughs> but what they do is it like, it spawned this whole other thing I hadn't even imagined. I didn't even know was possible. And I like that as being that a legacy of opportunity as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's, it's a way to recognize and codify invisible capital, you know? Is, right. is that you see what a community cares about by what they take care of and what they invest in. You know, it's really been interesting to be living in this time where every, all of the big meta stories are being revealed as very fragile and as very weak. And that um, what is working is staying closer to the ground and being present to what is actually needed, not what is wanted, but what is actually needed. And so for your escaped uh, tours, this whole idea is like, how do we move people to the places where they can have their needs met? You know, and how right. do we invest in them so that they start seeing themselves differently, that they invest in their own legacy of opportunity? Yeah. that gets activated and so and it takes moving to another location because maybe some of your needs can't be met in the community you're in right but it does and so what you do is you just kind of keep pushing them down and that gets you locked into a story that's not yours right so you know that's what i i mean obviously i'm a big fan of traveling having been born in london and ending up in texas by the age of five i'd gone a few places you know <laughs> Uh, but, and my dad was a, was a total gypsy as far as uh, seeing the world and, right. but, and I feel really fortunate, but it's, 
I didn't realize what a privilege that was until I talked to people who hadn't traveled, you know, more than a hundred miles outside of their birth, right. the place of birth. And, and at first I was very dismissive of that. And then I heard their stories. I'm like, Oh, I get it. You're of the land. This is right. who you are. Indigenous. Really, That's I what think indigenous admirable. means, by the way. Yeah. Yes. Literally, literally what it means. <laughs> yeah, and I actually learned that reading uh, Robert, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, huh. because she said that there's there's people who, um, she yeah, because she is uh, a Potawatomi, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, you know, I'm I'm a long way from my tribe, but I'm of the land. So wherever I am, I'm of the land, and so she really freed up the thinking for me around what it means to be indigenous and um you know so it, it, it what it does is it's another way to weave us all into the same basket saying we're all of the land so let's let's do our work and um and do it together so again moving away from that otherhood thinking and saying no no, no find a way to be more connected not less and this right. is part of what our our legacy of opportunity and these skate park tours of bringing, taking people to where they need to go to take care of what needs to be taken care of in their own personal story. And they can come back to where they, they started, but that you never come back the same person, right. you know, you well, need to be there. Well, that's the thing though. Like, you know, there's this whole, there's this, there's this whole culture where people are, are aware of these parks uh online um they've seen pictures they've seen videos and so then they finally go but i can use an example there's a park like we built a burnside park uh which is an illegal park under the burnside bridge and it's just celebrated 30 years actually it's coming up on 31 years um and uh and we did it a bag at a time and we did it under the eyes of uh well i wouldn't say under the eyes every time the cops came we ran (laughs) but but anyway eventually we got the formal endorsement from the city and um uh but anyway because of that that um kicked off uh what is what came to be known as the second coming of the skate park kind of broke the spell on the end of skate parks in the 70s we had been advocating and advocating through the 80s and we just couldn't break the spell so finally we decided to use what i would um charitably call the smash and grab methodology and and uh that worked. And so then from there, that really kicked off a whole industry. And uh, so the next big park that was built, the next one of note that had been built by the same people that did Burnside, um, which was us, um, um, us meaning just the collective, I, I wasn't part of the right. crew specifically, was Lincoln City, Oregon. And uh, the Lincoln City Park, uh, that just blew up. It was all over the media, the whole thing. And from there, it didn't just create other parks, it created other crews that were taking on kids that were eager to learn like you know Tavita was uh, one of the guys from the Lincoln City area um, that had picked up a trial and wanted to help with Lincoln City and to this day he's known as one of the highest quality craftsmen in the trade mm-hmm. a lot of people probably don't know this but you know the, there's this you know um, there's this thing in, in the popular imagination about how kids rode pools in backyard swimming pools uh, and, and then it turned into skate park stuff but what people mm-hmm. don't really know is that that actually isn't Actually, it was the pools weren't built for that from the for, in the first place, and it would trash the pools. And then the people who built the parks in the '70s weren't skateboarders, and they didn't know anything about long-term maintenance or any of that other stuff. So we were having to learn on the fly. So we had to evolve the um, we had to evolve the science. It actually got me involved in the ASTM. Um, <laughs> like no, no kidding. Um, uh, yeah. To actually um, advocate for certain standards on the concrete stuff, and uh, and we had to learn on the fly how to make concrete stand over your head. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's, there's whole stories on this, right? Well, anyway, as it turns out, Tavita, who was just this kid, um, kind of stumbled along to this park, decided he wanted to help. And now he's to this day known as one of the craftsmen. He has all that, that stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's cool because there's all these people know about the, the, the Lincoln city park. And there's a version of the Lincoln city park actually next to the Arkansas river in little North little rock, Arkansas. Um, but it's compressed <laughs> and it's like the most subtle nuanced thing is if you've tried to skate the park in North Little Rock, the way you do in um, Lincoln city, Oregon, you'll fall. And, and there's like all these little things. And that's just one level. That's just one level. But then there's this whole cottage industry thing above and beyond that. I actually don't even know how to entirely navigate because it's like, 
um, people will pick you up in a van in the Portland airport and it's a whole new generation. Like, you know, I'm 54. Uh, there's a lot of people who were born after I was in the thick of things. And so they know who I am or maybe they don't, I don't really care, but they'll pick you up in a van. They'll take you to a few places. And a lot of these parks, um, if you're going to drive from Portland to Lincoln city, you go through wine country. It's literally where they, where they do wine. It's famous um, uh, vineyards. And so then what they have as part of the tours is, is weaving people into uh, uh, wine tasting and, uh, and all that through Dundee, Oregon. Right. And I'm like fascinated by that because like in my day, this is where I like, I kind of fold my arms and I'm like, cause I'm like, you know, bald tattooed guy. Like I forgot. But in my day, in my day, like we were hiding behind the grocery store and we knew the sound of a cop car and we would, we would run. Right. And apparently within just one generation or so, we've got people doing wine tasting on the way to a perfectly legal skate park mm-hmm. on the Oregon coast. Um, I'm, what's going on? <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, it, it, but I mean, all of this, it goes back to this core pattern that you were talking about with your grandfather, which is, this is how we, you know, we learn. This is how we teach is right. by doing and by right. failing, you know, and, and when you were talking about privilege, one of the, the phrases, and, and I've written about this before, which is the privilege of failure, right. you know, that you and I grew up at a time where everything wasn't immediately tracked and everything wasn't like documented, you know, on the, on Insta or whatever. And so you could just fail your heart out, man. <laughs> and there was always, you literally lived to see another day. Yeah, I was good at that. Good at skateboarding. That's how you got good at building skate parks. That's how I got good at writing. You mm-hmm. know, it's like I wrote for years before I published. Right. And because I was so, you know, it, it just made me very nervous because you're like going public with it. But then you find out, wait a minute, this is, this needs to happen. Right. You know, people need to see the failure in order to start practicing it themselves. Right. And that, you know, you and I have had each had very interesting journeys and every bit of that, every, all the disappointments, all the things that didn't work out have built our wisdom, you know, have said, oh, okay, this is that we can authentically say, man, give it a try, you yeah. know? Um, and, uh, you know, my, my dad used to say, well, you know, uh, if it doesn't kill you, it was probably a good idea, you know? <laughs> it's like, if it does kill you, maybe not. Maybe it wasn't such a great idea. So that's what we have to do. And oh. so and we can apply that just to ideas, you know? Yeah. Let's just well, put well, it out there. In my family, we say that which isn't fatal is fun, depending upon perspective. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, by all means, the four of you get on that motorcycle and see how fast you can go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to learn about physics today, and then we're going to learn about the afterlife for probably one of these. Totally, but that is, um, you know, that is a, a thing, actually, um, uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's one of the things, it's what I really prefer about working with the elders is that they usually have worked their way. They've tumbled down the stairs enough times that hopefully they have yeah. enough wisdom and humility to recognize where to position themselves. Like I work with a lot of activists and I, and I work very hard to get into the mix of those who are the most outraged. And I have a certain daddy energy. And before long, they're just sharing with me their, the things they've built. And I find myself playing the role that my grandpa would do is just sitting there and saying, I, I love the way you did this. I think this is great. Um, you've got a certain skill. And I realize that they've received nothing but criticism. And in fact, they're actually mm-hmm. pretty good at what they do. And then, um, and then the quality of their work improves. And this is like, it's just the smallest thing. It's just a little squirt of oxygen when the fire needs it and, uh, and off it goes. And um, so that's kind of the cool thing about where we're going with this. Um, our pilot communities is that, you know, we had shared in a prior podcast, there were two here in Austin, they decided to combine efforts. Um, they, um, uh, they, uh, <laughs> they uh, now are rallied around a watershed. So um, mm-hmm. there's a strategic plan to um, figure out how we can, eventually calibrate the um, economic footprint to a watershed um, while improving the ecological quality of the watershed. Um, oh, and then by the way, we get to do all these other things. I have a little worksheet here. We can like uh, basically generate more household income and you can like help grow little businesses and, mm-hmm. uh, and then you can create a financial safety net. I mean, it's cool because it's like all the stuff they did. And then we've been attracting new people, <laughs> which is, which is of course, 
that's something that gives me a little bit of stress because I've been through this before and there's such a thing as too much growth too fast. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about tapping the brakes, just doing it wisely, but it is taken on its own, its own gravity. Um, and it's in that context that I recognize that they're beginning to look above the horizon and say, look, look where we can go with this. And, um, and I have another community in North Carolina and they were talking about, is it possible to franchise this so we can, we can do this elsewhere. And the answer is that's exactly what it is. It's literally a franchise yeah. prototype. By definition, an, a, a proven business model, an operating plan and a governance model that can be replicated. It's literally what it is. And as Ruth had indicated, we're writing the Anti-Fragile Playbook. The plan of record does not publish it until we use it on ourselves. Because why would I write a, um, why would I publish a, a, a cinnamon roll recipe if I haven't eaten the cinnamon exactly. rolls, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right, so... But anyway, it's coming together. It's coming together in such a way that people are that we're working with are beginning to, to step into it. They recognize their role in making it happen. Therefore, it is activating their sense of, uh, of, of attribution, their ownership. Um, it's suddenly so quiet. Did you hear there was like dueling chainsaws outside? It was amazing. And now it's- No, I couldn't hear it actually. Oh God, it was really, there was like, had to have been three or four. It was like a, like a heavy metal song from the eighties, except that it was a- <laughs> <laughs> you're looking for the hair band you're like, i'm telling you it was like it's like the most extended guitar solo ever except with chainsaws and now it stopped <laughs> i have to check maybe the rapture happened and i just don't know <laughs> free chainsaws well, i gotta go get those chainsaws <laughs> uh yeah see there you go you, you saw the opportunity you're like oh man this is it so- what i need in my life right now is four chainsaws <laughs> Well, you know, the girls are coming. I was going to say, the girls will be here after school. (laughs) (laughs) Did you give me candy? No. Girls, I got you something better. A chainsaw. (laughs) But you can trade for candy. It's all they (laughs) Or you can do whatever. Wow, I digress. Anywho. Uh, It happens. (laughs) (laughs) Where were we? (laughs) Uh, No, well, but, 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 so, so you know, we're talking about the community and how it's evolved uh-huh. and, and that, that by working with this, this has kind of been for us as, as you, me and Trudy creating the anti-fragile playbook, this has been a learning lab, you know, yeah. this has been a way for us to say, okay, here's our theory. Oh, wait, here's practice, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and this is really informing because even just in, in the, I, the, the aspect of language, our language has upgraded so much because it's we're getting feedback from the people who have to, to share the story and they don't have our our experiential wisdom you know like that this is this is new so this is for me certainly the fun part is like oh wow how are we crafting this you know how how is this um how are we we uh, coordinating and collaborating on ownership of this story it's not colonizing somebody with like just do this it's like no it's saying man let's be equal partners in this right because we're it, it's a co-learning experience right? right and so it's and for me it's um you know it's definitely informing the poetry it's informing my other writing and my the other conversations i have is that I have that it may not always be at the forefront, but there's this ongoing kind of, you know, nuance of, uh, that I check back with to say, is this true? Has it ever been true? Could it be true? And should it be true? It just right. kind of runs through because I'm, I'm getting this huge benefit of actually talking to people who are going to, that are living the story, right. you know? Well, uh, you had um, referenced that in the podcast that was just released yesterday, which I loved actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, is, Ruth was recognized as a thought leader um, on Randy Baker's podcast, and it was great actually. And uh, you were talking about the asking the four questions, which for me correlates with my military thing about the UDA model. Like for me, it's yeah. just refreshing the screen constantly. It's not about executing more rapidly. It has to do with being able to operate within the decision cycle of your opponent, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. basically counting on the other guy, not refreshing the screen frequently enough. And they usually do that because they think they, um, they can get away with it because they have power and um, nuance. Uh, mm-hmm. It just, you know, has no match for nuance. So um, 
so the, there's this meme you and I've been laughing about the observer effect and stuff like that. There's this meme. Mm-hmm. Of, I don't know what, I don't know what you call it, but it's like this puppet and it's like, it's eyes are looking to the left and then it's looking to the right. Right. And, uh, and so the top panel is the, it's basically referencing the double slit experiment, which is a reference to the, um, to the observer effect and that, you know, the certain realities don't coalesce until you actually, they don't manifest until you look at them. And, uh, and I like that, that, that meme a lot because what people see as chaos they, they, they it's usually because it doesn't reflect an order they understand so i um i usually talk about you know orderly chaos um with a capital o <laughs> because because there is actually order to it it's just it's not it's not our fault that you can't see the order and so um and so i like about this is that um if people can have the right mindset on this and uh, and and they can see the order and then they end up, it ends up becoming a cumulative effect. And I understand mm-hmm. why people don't, because they're in this state of sort of shock and, and, and uh, trauma. And, um, and I understand that that actually precludes people from seeing the possibility, but if they have a little bit of faith, which is not religion, by the way, it's just sort of believing that it's going to work out. Um, you'd be surprised at how well you can see the opportunity. And then, and this isn't like some philosophical blah, blah, blah talk. This is actually real stuff. Like we're actually, launching a plan that would help people stay in their homes, feed their kids, uh, you know, reclaim their dignity on their terms uh, while like funding their social services and maybe helping the planet, you know, blah, 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 that well, kind of thing. Right. And there's lots of opportunity. actually. Yeah, tons of it. Well, and, and it's something that weirdly is not being addressed. You know, there's, there's two elements, two drivers at play here. One is, how do you keep people in their homes? You know, so, so it's like, there's a lot, especially here in Austin, front and center, there's a lot of conversation about the homeless population, but there's no conversation about preventing homelessness. Uh You know, that's what's missing. That the other aspect is what we are in-house calling day two, you know, which is okay. Day zero, it all burns down. Day one, you're kind of, you know, resettling. What happens on day two? Right. What, what, what's going to happen when the widows and the children and the aged and the disabled are just kind of cast adrift? Right. You know, so, so let's prevent it and then let's have a plan for what happens after it happens, you know? Right. And so it's, it, so the opportunity to meet people where they are support what they're already doing well right and then work with them on to uncover what is their legacy of opportunity you know in a language of meaning to them you know that's that may not mean anything to them so it's so you can't just kind of keep saying it louder you have to start listening rather than looking at them and saying why don't you understand it it's kind of like that meme you were talking about with that monkey that's like sees it and then side eyes you going like you're seeing this too right it's a monkey i'm gonna write that down now i know it's a monkey it's a monkey that's <laughs> <laughs> true though man like i'm telling you like the 90s um were kind of an economic bummer in portland but for us it were amazing because there was all this stuff that we could just pull from and use it to build our skate park um there was this like thing that completely collapsed up on burnside which is kind of crummy area at the time and uh for us it was free breaks <laughs> so it was like you know what i mean like and then um because things had become marginally less dangerous under the burnside bridge people were dumping their trash there instead of taking it to the dump and for us it was like we could use it to fill our illegal skate park <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I, and, and i have a i have a similar relationship with austin you know i've lived here on and off since 1980 right and i as about of, of those 40 years, half of the time I've been here, half the time I've lived someplace else. But I always come back when Austin is in a down cycle. Uh-huh. You know, it's always after the dot bomb. It's always after the, the real estate collapse, whatever. And I see nothing but opportunity because what people have that they didn't have before is they have time. Yeah. That people are like, well, you know, I, in fact, I can't have a two hour conversation with you so we can get to real things instead of just this drive-by 15-minute chat where it's like I'm not dead oh I'm not dead either great so we're both doing perfect you know and it's like okay and so it's been you know and and it's also during those those uh those fallow periods it's a great time for discovery yeah and that I think is for me having been in Austin you know associated with Austin for so long is where the real um the real 
uh, heartbreak is, is that we no longer have discovery here right. because it's been so, you know, constructed and sold and, and parceled out. And I think back and it wasn't, it, for me, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but I, I realized that there's people who have never lived in the Austin that I'm thinking of. And that's even in the early 2000s. Um, and so when we get back to the legacy of opportunity and going back to your original story about your grandfather, discovery was part of what was driving this, mm -hmm. which is like, what is, you know, you can kind of, you know, expand your curiosity right. and, and, and experiment. And so by like, even th this, this community um, marketplace that we're putting together, we're discovering things. People are like, oh, by the way, did you know that I, you know, I, 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 I can craft jewelry or whatever it's going to be. Right. And that's the, to me, that's the exciting part. And then when we're creating these spaces where people feel um, that they can, they can be vulnerable. Right. And ask the question that they think is going to get shot down if it's, you know, if, if they're not perfect or whatever. And it's like, I don't know, we, we aspire to imperfection. You know, that's well, our goal here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, incremental improvement uh, on on, yeah. on constant iterations. So one thing that we're in explicitly investing in is um, is collaboration. So um, yeah. we, we don't, just by design of our of our thing, we don't let the marketplace grow beyond a certain size. And by our parlance, in order to grow um, higher, you got to root deeper. Um, and, uh, and if you want to grow it um, beyond that, you'll have to just spawn another community. Um, and so far, we haven't had any problem with people understanding that. Um, and mm -hmm. so what's cool about that is that none of the communities are technically competitive and therefore have no disincentive to collaborate. Right. And so what's really fabulous, it's already happening. This is actually by design intent, is that, um, you know, here are the people in Austin. We're looking at each other essentially from across the freeway because that's kind of how it works. Um, there are neighborhoods that are artificial grids and they are not actual neighborhoods they're economic zones that define how much mm -hmm. people hope to get from their house when they sell it or what amenities are around how many starbucks are nearby whatever mm -hmm. and then there's a freeway and that kind of sucks but anyway so then they said well let's just pull it together and it ends up creating the perfect team and then they rally to a watershed which has been around for millennia and has no regard or consideration for our economic zones and so so then that information was shared with the community in north carolina that community is obviously not competitive because it's in a completely different watershed and they're like oh my god we could do this um and that was a fabulous conversation because they're talking about how might we build out a this was amazing ruth it was like because we're not even there we're not even on that step like we have a very concrete step like we're going to do this you guys and they're like okay cool but how are we going to do this we could put together a month by month or quarter by quarter plan that first off helps people start buying beef in the watershed and then from there demonstrates how much water is used to feed the mm -hmm. cow versus other sorts of things. Cause some of them are vegan and look, I don't really care. I like bacon. I like beef, whatever, but I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to calibrate the footprint to the watershed and dig it. So then that information gets shared back over here in Austin. Right. And this is a, this is explicitly the, the, the intention is how to actually create um, a, a culture that, 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 that perpetuates that legacy of opportunity because it won't be long there's already kind of reaching for each other where they just say, look, we're just going to start talking to that other community over there and start sharing ideas. And it was from there that they were like, okay, I have an idea for another community. Um, you and I had this discussions with the Choctaw actually, because they were like, okay, well, 90 something percent of the Choctaw don't even live in Oklahoma. So that's one community. And then there's a the Choctaw that live in Oklahoma. And then maybe there's a community for people who want to buy Choctaw art. Um, but da, 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 da. like they just thought this for them, it was very straightforward. And, um, uh, I like it actually. I kind of I kind of dig it because because then they begin to recognize that the order is in the chaos. The order has been there for millennia. <laughs> it's how it's yeah. how we got here. That's why there's so many of us. Come on, guys, get it together. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 and and the thing too is that this I think this is another way for people to get connected to environment and the story of climate. You know, because uh -huh. it's so overwhelming. What do you do? I mean, how do you do you deal with the, the flooding? Do you deal with the fires? Do you deal with the collapse? You know, what do you do? But if you could actually map people to their footprint to mm -hmm. say, okay, we have a way to, again, create some signal out of this noise. Right. And say, oh, wow, here's how I can affect change. Right. And, and I can do it at a human scale level. And because, you know, 
as we've all seen, there's tons of high tech firms just circling and landing in Austin. Well, they're huge water hawks. I mean, they, yeah. they, they consume a ton of water uh -huh. and that never seems to be part of the discussion in a public way. Right. And um, one of the, uh, you know, I, I wrote an article about 640 acres. It's like, how, what happens when we don't hand that off to one giant organization? Right. What if we broke it down into households? How does that change the economics of it for sustainability? So I, I, I love the idea that you came up with with the watershed, because as you said, that crosses all other divisive boundaries, Indeed. you know, descriptive boundaries, because it's like, no, 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 we all need to share this water. How do we do it? How do we create a commons? And it's, it's introducing a lot of language to people that they aren't in the habit of, but they have they, they adapt really quickly once you give them a way to organize it so it has value to them. Yeah, well, and in fact, um, I think that this, I think the way this is going to play out is that people feel uh, enough agency and ownership that they'll have um, a lot of confidence going to those large uh, firms and negotiating with them in terms of what their footprint is. Um, because over time, because that's, you know, so people always overestimate the, um, the importance of short-term spectacle and they completely miss the, the full import of long-term trends. They just like, this is just a weird human quality, right? It's also, by the way, why I love spending time with the elders because in the twilight of their lives, they begin to see it. <laughs> they begin to see like all of that short-term spectacle was nothing compared to the long-term trends. But if you play this out in the long-term, there will be people who will feel a genuine and authentic sense of ownership. And from a place of great confidence, they will be able to say, you know, you guys are, you guys are not that great for the, for the watershed. <laughs> and we would well, recommend, we would recommend that you modify it this way and we can help you yeah. with that. We can help you with it. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, and again, it, and it's, you're creating this other, going back to our, our core message of legacy of opportunity is that what I find, and certainly I, I've heard from different parents, their kids are very tapped into the reality of of what's going on, you know, mm -hmm. like, like they, 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 they are being taught about the value of water. They've been taught about, you know, limits um, and that, that we were not taught at all. It was always a super growth, right? It was like, just like, we can do anything we want forever and ever, amen. Mm. And, but we have to find ways to talk about it. So they're not in fear. It's not about the scarcity of water. It's going back to that word Zurich, right? Uh -huh. and, and you made this great observation that the real power of that is that you learn to see abundance and scarcity. Indeed. Look past the surface. And so I think that there's a lot of ways to, you know, to really put some muscle around this, this future potential that is actually that there's more than enough for everybody. It just has to be used in a way that is conscious and collaborative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just like, I was just thinking about how um, when people, cause I like to find people in a state of outrage and then I like to try to tease that apart. You and I had shared in a prior podcast, like how do we get into that Gordian knot under the supposition that you can't cut it. <laughs> and uh, cause that's a normal approach. And uh, I find that people, what informs their outrage is typically because they don't feel a sense of agency. They don't feel that they can actually do anything. And so then they start yelling um, and uh, or whatever. And uh, so you can, un you can untie that. If you can help them, if you can help them realize that there are things they can do. They might mm -hmm. like yell a few more times, but, uh, but you know, eventually they, they usually get into it. Um, it doesn't happen overnight, but again, don't, don't underestimate the longer term impacts. Uh, and uh, nor the um, well the network effect this is what Patrick had shared mm -hmm. with us which I love is um, you don't you don't need everybody in the watershed to invest in the quality of the mycelia network actually that's the underground yeah. subterranean fungi that informs everything else um, if you want to improve the quality of the plants you actually just need a few of the neighbors to do so and the mycelia which has been there since like forever they pick up with it and they run with it. And then it improves the quality of the soil, therefore the quality of the plants, therefore the quality of how the water's processed. As it turns out, the watershed that was chosen 
that actually end up being the case here in Austin um, for this community is, is actually the worst, most polluted one in Austin, which gives us mm-hmm. a lot to work with. But we don't have to get everybody to do it. We just get a few people and, um, and it improves the quality for everything. And likewise, choosing, it's, it's, uh, it's who you choose, right? You don't, I don't have to have all the outreach people. It's just the right ones. And, uh, and it, does, it does work. It does tip. I've done it before and I know it works. Actually, oh, you know. And, and, and to quote um, a guy named Kent Dahlgren, tis metaphor, you know. Tis metaphor. Tis <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like we play some grave upon. <laughs> but, but this whole idea that, you know, you, we're, we're working with the forgotten. We're yeah. working with the, the core people who, you know, they've invested in this world. They've invested right. in the neighborhoods and communities. They've done the right thing to the best of their capacity. And they just, you know, what we're doing now is saying, how do we, you know, collaborate and coordinate language and access to productive tools, tools of productive capacity, so that you can move, you know, you've done the seed, root, and grow part of it. Let's let's sustain it now. Uh-huh. And, and that's not part of the um, the the sexy growth cycle that the high tech dollars look at. They just want to seed root and grow. That's all they want to do and grow right. and grow and grow. Right. And they're not investing in the roots and they end up with the dirty water. I mean, it's again, tis metaphor, Mr. Dahlgren. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, there's like, honestly, nothing but um, optimism if you know where to look for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, as I said, you know, I, I have a, a pretty extensive um, uh, uh, network from which I can draw uh, mm-hmm. activist and, uh, and uh, in some pools and some circles where you wouldn't expect it is actually significant sense of uh, a spirit of optimism. And uh, there's a lot you can do with that energy. And, um, and so I encourage people to do that, find those pockets, you'd be surprised, you might be surprised by mm-hmm. what you find there. Uh, but, um, but things are coming together for us in a way that makes me happy, if, if only because I can sense that 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 legacy of opportunity is sort of landing for the people we're working with. And, and, you know, we're trying to not just make them successful. We're actually trying to set them up where they inspire others to. And um, it's very, it, it turns into a very metaphysical thing where like, it's very much just an injection of love into the mix, which is not like, you know, romantic love, but it's definitely love for your neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and it works like, you know, I don't know what else to say about it, man. Three snap walk away. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is, uh, it, it, you know, this has been such a, a fun conversation. And uh, it's, you know, one of the things I've been noticing is that it feels like things are moving really slow, then all of a sudden things are moving really fast. There doesn't seem to be any middle ground at this point. Well, and it's because and so, <laughs> people overestimate <laughs> short-term spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> they keep missing. Um, Go ahead. But, but the but the whole opportunity here that the, the ba- real value add is both you and I and Trudy, we've been preparing for this for a really long time. Right. You know, like back years ago, people would very uh, paternalistically uh, pat me on the head and say, "Oh, you're such an idealist." Those yeah. same people are now reaching out, going like, "You know." It may have been, you may have been a realist all along. No, I, I was looking at the wrong reality. I'm like, yeah, I like to think of it that way. <laughs> no, I know. It's trippy. Like, I, I, you and I talked about this the other night. Like, I would interview. It was like my role would be product manager, which is something akin to a, a for-hire entrepreneur um, within a mm-hmm. technology firm. I'd be responsible for the profit and loss, essentially running the business for a business, but also the subject matter expert. And I'd have to work with the teams. Like, basically, they hired me to run their thing. And in the interview process, they would interview me for what Ruth calls one container. I love the metaphor, but it's pulled from the domain of linguistics. They had mm-hmm. erected essentially a false container, suggesting that I would be able to do all of those things. But when it gets into the job, the expectation is actually do what they had always done all along, which is why they were in such a mess in the first place. And my job is to become um, productively insubordinate, which is to like basically mm-hmm. uh, not do the stupid things that they've been doing all along and do the things they hired me for. And it turns out I'm pretty good at it. But um, over and over again, I would I would paint a picture on not just how to fix the business they had, but how to line it up for a, um, a, a, a solid entry and competitive position within a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and, and repeatedly they'd be like, well, 
actually, I told you about that. I, 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 I interviewed at Dell SecureWorks and I got a verbal offer. And then the, the rest of the exec team said that they didn't want to because, because Michael Dell told them that organic growth was acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I had drawn on the whiteboard what it took to deliver inorganic growth with minimal investment uh, and reconfiguration on their part. And, and the answer was, but, but the boss said organic growth is acceptable, right? So I'm kind of running into the same thing where some of these people are like, okay, well, maybe we're not surprised that you came up with a decent solution, a banger, as I would say, right? Yeah. Because, because the thing is like, I'm pretty decent at this. I like that people are becoming ready to receive. And in retrospect, I recognize that maybe it's good that it didn't work out in any of those prior things because I'm in this position and I kind of dig it because if you hadn't noticed, the market opportunity is actually trillions of dollars in size. It's, well, not, it's, not, a, it's not a billion, like a billion dollar market yeah. here, big, you know? I, I, you know, and, and the same thing is like I started talking about women's work back in 2017, kind of made it more of a focus in 2019. Right. And then now in 2021, the articles are coming out stating that unpaid and undervalued women's work worldwide is worth $10.9 trillion right. in 2018. I'm like, y'all, that's bigger than any of these, you know, we work Airbnb, whatever markets you're talking about. Yeah. And so why aren't we addressing literally, you know, the opportunity that is knocking on your door? It's like, it's, so, um, and, and so it, it's validating certainly um, to, to have people kind of catch up with this and go like, oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm sorry it had to be at such a pain point, you know, um, where that people are in dire straits. But the good news is, is that because you and I have been such wonderful failures in our own ways, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that we carry that authenticity of potential in our own, yeah, as yeah. we enter the room, you know, and people align with that. They're like, wait a minute, you're not, you didn't just read a book on this. No, I don't uh, I don't You've don't actually, th- those are well-earned scars. Well, in so. fact, this is, this is the thing where like, you know, if the size and the potential of a market could be quantified by the by the size and the incompetency of the current players, right? Because <laughs> that's literally the methodology you use. Then I would argue the market we're going into is the largest on earth, which is actually governance. And it doesn't mean government, by the way, because it's a different thing. But but what it is is that people might have an opportunity to structure their own affairs um, on their terms. And that doesn't mean to the to the exception of the government. It just means the government maybe sucks at it. Like they're not great at it. They're pretty good at consolidating resources towards the top to the detriment of literally hundreds of millions, if not more people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what we're suggesting is if you take just a little slice of that extractive economics, you might be able to fuel your own uh, thing. And uh, that's cool. But anyway, it ends up being like trillions of dollars in size. And we could be endeavoring for the rest of our lives and probably never make any even a slice of that. Because I have been and work for big companies in multi-billion dollar markets and it takes forever to get a slice out of that. And it's for that reason that I really go all in on generosity, which is to mm-hmm. say, like, I'll have people that'll sort of sneak up to my elbow and try to figure out what, uh, you know, what's your secret. And I'm like, well, I'll tell you the secret. But first and foremost, you should know that we've published, you know, I don't know, 27 podcasts on the topic. I've also published dozens of articles and I've recorded tons of video on it. So um, mm-hmm. if you want, you could watch any of those instead of trying to figure out if I have a safe or a vault, uh, or I could just tell you how it works, which I do all the time <laughs> because as mm-hmm. it turns out it's not that big of a secret like it's literally just use the extractive economic model and instead of trying to be the next jeff bezos maybe help, help other people and um and so uh because i think there could be you know 20 or 30 such uh, endeavors just helping people uh structure their affairs i think it's, it'll probably how it plays out people just have to see it happen but we can mm-hmm. afford to be generous there's a lot of opportunity there and man when you when you change your thinking there's all there's so many reasons to be uh, optimistic and happy about it. And, and I, you know, I don't know. It's not that there's not a need to get upset, but it's just, I don't know. I have a different well, philosophy on it. It's just another opportunity. I'm going to reach back to what we said a, a number of podcasts ago. It's fine to be an outrage. Take that fire, put it in a lantern, Indeed. light a way forward, Indeed. you know? And that that's all we're doing is saying, great, here's a container for that outrage. Mm-hmm. Let's see what it shows us. And yeah. it's, and just recognize that all of the the, um, the, the agenda, the purpose behind uh, the inflaming, 
you know, the continued feeding of the fire of outrage is about consumption. Mm -hmm. It's not about producing well-being. It's about consuming well-being. And, you know, the key is, is like, it's hard to tell people to just step away because it's like you're surrounded on all fronts. It's like that uh, gif of the dog sitting surrounded by fire saying it's fine because you have to kind of go, okay, this is how it is. But what we're finding is that people are really looking for those containers. They're looking for those lanterns because nobody wants to burn up and all this stuff and they don't want the people around them to burn either. So it's, it's, it's really giving us a chance to, um, to emerge, um, you know, out of this, these fires, like, like to be totally poetic, the Phoenix rising is that people want to, to, to move to a better place, you know, and, and, and this is awakening. It's, it's, it's lighting up their own perhaps epigenetic um, legacy of opportunity. Yeah, seriously, oh. reach back, dig into your yeah. grandparents' stories. They probably got here for a reason. It might've had to do mm-hmm. with creativity and hard work. I mean, that's my pro tip. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, so here we are, we're, we're waxing poetic. So, uh, <laughs> we literally, I bring this up all the time. A, How did your grandparents get here? His is what it is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I do, I say it like almost every day because people will be running their mouth about stuff. And I'm like, how'd your grandparents get here? Tell me that story. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's a pretty decent blueprint on how we're going to navigate that. You just got to remember how you got here. Uh, that's the end. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah, no, like, I, I think that's... I remember saying I missed the sound of my grandparents' voices, um, but I realize it echoes in our in our in our actions. It's the it's the echoes of that that investment they made and the legacy of opportunity. Right. So, you know, not everybody's going to get it. I'm okay with that. We only need a few people. It's coming together. Yeah. So, yeah. Look at me. I got a big smile on my face. Not actually. <laughs> now I do. <laughs> I'm myself smile. <laughs> okay. What else? Okay. Wow. This was fun. Yeah. As always. Thanks for the chicken yeah. last night. It was delicious. Yeah. You know, a little thing I do on the side. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, girls will be happy to see you. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking tacos tonight. Yeah, tacos. We started at 10 10. We ended at 11 11. That's good. That's a good. Perfect. All right. Perfect. I'll talk okay. to you later. Great. Bye. Cheers. Bye.